An ecotone is a place where two ecosystems overlap or interact. It's an interface between two ecosystems. And an ecotone is the richest environment of all because it, it provides those who live there with all kinds of options. Who wouldn't want to live in an ecotone? And in this case, on the shore, it's the importance of those fish, those shellfish and the seaweed, uh, who uh, that, I should say, not who, uh, contributed to the brain size, contributed to the richness of, of the catch, the richness of trade. The shore then becomes mankind's first place of communication. And I mean that as a place of exchange, of trade, think about it, um, the development of, of all kinds of commercial enterprises, and ultimately an interface of progress, of progress, of real progress in mankind. But the ecotone is also an interesting place when we consider its cultural dimension. It is in ecotones, and particularly on shores and interfaces, that we get the meeting of people. We get multiculturalism. We get exchanges of language, of information, of invention, and all those good things. Some people today are beginning to talk about the shore and the sea as producing the blue mind. This is a new term. I'm a little bit skeptical of it, but it's the idea that there is something about us that is being brought out by our contact with the shore and the sea, the blue mind. Now, the role of the shore then is not just a material role. It didn't, didn't just make us rich and healthy and all that kind of stuff. It triggers something that sets apart humans from every other species, <coughs> namely imagination the ability to imagine. And it is at shores that we can document now, and we're doing this increasingly, um, that we find religion, the arts, fiction, fine arts flourishing. These are the places, if you look around, you will find all of these things uh, thriving as opposed uh, to other environments. All right, let's, let's think a little bit then about uh, the United States and its, its role. All right, let's go back one here. Now, the, in, in the beginnings, in the 17th and 18th centuries, or even back in the 16th century, the coast was a pretty bleak place, let's face it. Uh, nothing like the current conditions of, of Long Beach. Uh, would greet the visitor there. This is a dog hole port um, on the uh, coast of Northern California, but it was an essential part of the logging industry at the time. The coast, however, was our first frontier, not the interior, not the frontier that is usually portrayed in the cowboy movies, but rather the frontier of the shore. It was the maritime nature of early American. I mean by this, the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th century 
which made this country in its origins what it is today. You'd never know this by reading textbooks because that the maritime and the coastal tends to get uh, left out. But when you think that the Puritans survived in Massachusetts, not on agriculture, but through fishing, that the whaling industry was our first great adventure in American capitalism, when the fur trade in Northern California brought here uh, not just the Anglos, but the Russians uh, and, and, uh, and Inuit groups, you begin to appreciate uh, how important uh, the maritime uh, was to early America. In fact, um, it was thought for a long time, and Tocqueville articulated this, that this country was going to be a maritime nation, that what would uh, constitute its greatness was its maritime prowess. That didn't turn out to be true, but it was not wrong for him to think that in 1837. So the ports not this one necessarily, this is a, a rather sad little example, um, but um, the ports were our first cities on the East Coast. All the great cities there uh, existed as ports. They had no other function. Their connection with the, with the hinterland was weak. Uh, trade was our lifeline as, uh, as Europeans. We depended on our home countries until the revolution. Uh, to um, uh, maintain ourselves, uh, and it, they accounted for the first phases of commercial capitalism, which would lead on, as we'll see, to agricultural and industrial capitalism, ultimately. Our coasts, both west, by the way, and east, this is often forgotten, that we had a west coast uh, in the 18th century, uh, were cosmopolitan places. People from all over the world intermingled uh, as they do today. Not all that different from California today was the California of the 18th century. And the Oregon and the, uh, what is today, Washington uh, would be the same. In fact, for the most part, Americans looked toward the sea, both east and west, for their future. 18th century Americans dreamed of their connections with Asia as much as they did with their connections uh, to the old Europe. So let us come, though, to the 19th century. This is a turning point, and that's what historians do. We tell you the story of turning points. In the 19th century, we turned away from the sea, in effect. We turned away from our uh, maritime uh, traditions and began to build up the greatest single agricultural economy of the world through the use of railways, through the, um, through the, uh, the efforts of farmers. We became uh, a farm nation. We became, in effect, the Middle West. And after that, Quite soon after that came industrialization. The two were closely linked. Agriculture and industry were both the products of the great surge of capitalist um, activity in the, in the 19th century. And what we were ending up doing by the end of the 
19th century was to turn our backs substantially on the sea. Of course, we had a navy. Of course, we still had a, a something of a mercantile um, uh, operation around the world, but it was pretty weak in comparison to what it was, say, in, in 1800. And our, our ports also changed. They changed dramatically. They lost their independence. Uh, they no longer were interesting uh, places in and of themselves. They were now pass-through points, pass-through for the immigrants arriving from abroad, landing at Angel Island or Ellis Island, being put on trains and, and hustled into the Midwest uh, where there were jobs and where there was a future. In this moment from you know, roughly uh, the 1870s, 1880s onward, um, the, the coast withered. They lost population rather than gained population. I'll come back to that in a moment. This is an important part of this story. Ports became uh, lost their, their functions, their original functions. They became detached, this seems strange to say, from the sea itself. Um, they lost their fishing to, uh, to larger, ever larger ports and sometimes simply to offshore operations. So the little fishing villages of New England, which we uh, still treasure today for their quaintness, almost disappeared. On Gotts Island in Maine, we live in an old fishing village which entirely lost its population in 1928 and was designated as one of the ghost towns of New England uh, in the aftermath of that. It's hard to believe that you, we live in a town that once disappeared, but it's back now, of course, as a, as a summer island. I'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing that happened to the coast um, uh, during the uh, late 19th and early 20th century is they became uh, defensive walls, ramparts for the nation. As the United States grew in power, self-esteem, and imperial outreach, uh, the coasts be, were fortified, armored, uh, and turned uh, their face to the sea, uh, often in a rather hostile manner, and I'll come back to that as well. This had the effect, frankly, of hardening the shore. The shore had been a welcoming place, an open place, as we saw in that, uh, in that early map of New England. It was a porous place. People came and went. Uh, there were no tariffs initially. Uh, there were no papers or passports to be stamped. But by the early 20th century, all of those things were coming into being, and the the shore, the coast, became a border for the first time, a wall. And this was to have uh, some really uh, striking effects. So here we go. We're now moving into the 20th century. And the shore <clears throat> begins to change dramatically. It changes from a working waterfront, a working beach, and here is a, an example, uh, actually from the uh, English example, but not untypical of what you would have found on the east coast of the United States and down here, Southern California, are the fisherwomen uh, assisting 
uh, their kinfolk and bringing in the catch and then uh, uh, marketing it or distributing it. In other words, the whole coast in the 19th century was often a, um, a workplace which contained uh, not just men but women and sometimes, of course, children. This was about to be displaced in a very dramatic fashion uh, by the end of the 19th century by the incursion of recreation. And I show you this rather stunning example of the bathing machine, first invented in England but quickly brought to the rest of the world, in which people came down to the shore not to swim, because the swimming skills were very undeveloped in the, in the Western world. And indeed, this is the way people bathed. They didn't swim, they bathed. And they came down and they were placed in these wagons, uh, towed down into the surf, uh, had their moments, uh, rather risque it seems, perhaps, but not really. Uh, and then they retreated uh, to the strand. And the places where this became um, uh, uh, a, uh, a popular place of recreation um, were called spas. And they proliferated all over the coast of England initially, and then into the eastern coast of the United States, Cape May. They spread to the shores of the, of the Old South, and ultimately they became a, uh, perhaps reached their epitome here on the west coast. But in any case, this is the beginning of the shore as vacation land. It's vacation. Here is an early shore. Uh, this is late 19th century. New Jersey. Can you believe it? Does this look like the Jersey shore of today? Uh, no. But this is the way people comported themselves at the, at the shore. Uh, in the late 19th century. They dressed up for the shore. Uh, they communed with one another by social group, uh, women with women, men with men. And so it went right into the uh, early 20th century. And what looks like a kind of bucolic scene uh, in Jersey quickly becomes um, the kind of crowded beach of Scarborough, Scarborough uh, England. Uh, the working classes uh, finally got their chance through the, the train to come down for the weekend. Some said the dirty weekend. But in any case, that's the image of the shore uh, by the 1920s uh, in England itself. This is the kind of transformation of the shore from workplace to recreation place. And just a couple other uh, nice examples of this. Um, this is recreating on the Jersey Shore again, taking exercise on the beach. Now, I don't think this happens anymore, but it's a wonderful example of how shores, particularly beaches, uh, came to be used in all kinds of ways. And in the process of this, the old occupants of the beach, the natives of the beach, the fishermen, fisherwomen, the hunter-gatherers, the clamors, um, the shrimpers, and so on, uh, lost their place and were, in effect, sent into exile to uh, make, uh, make space 
uh, for this, uh, this new kind of uh, culture, this new kind of social class, uh, the recreational leisured class. And here's where we come to the, the crucial thing that you can read about in my books, the invention of the beach. Now, this is poignant because here we are in Long Beach. Uh, and um, uh, Long Beach was, I was told tonight, simply a descriptor of a long, smooth beach, which used to have its surf before the seawall and so on. And long beaches were largely neglected until the 19th century. They really didn't have a purpose. People didn't swim. They didn't sunbathe. Those were both loathsome activities. But by the 20th century, the long beaches, and particularly the sandy beaches, this is the crucial thing, became the location of American and European uh, popular vacationing. This was all new, all kinds of new architecture, bathing costumes, uh, the boardwalk, all of these things were invented in the late 19th century to accommodate this new form of recreation built around sand. Of all things, that useless uh, material. Um, but today, I've written in the New York Times uh, uh, quite recently about how sand today is perhaps the most valuable single mineral, if you can call it that, uh, resource in the world today. There are sand wars going on around the world um, in various parts of the underdeveloped world. And even here in California, of people illegally digging sand to make beaches uh, for those who require them as part of their sense of, of self. And now we come by the later mid-20th century, after the war, essentially, uh, to a, a new kind of beach. This, by the way, uh, it was interesting driving in today and seeing the oil wells pumping just outside of town. But this, this I think, was, if not Long Beach itself, something quite near here in the 1920s. This is what a beach looked like until it was transformed after the war, after the beaches were defended against uh, the enemy and became a location of fortification. Uh, here we go. And then we end up in uh, the post-war world with the idyllic beach, the perfect beach. This is Bondi Beach, the famous Bondi Beach um, uh, outside of, um, uh, uh, in, in Australia. Uh, outside Melbourne, and you can see what a transformation, what a strange thing this is. Nothing like this ever existed in human history, and there it is, the civilization on the beach. Look at all this civilized behavior going on uh, among naked savages. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, when you think about this, this is really weird behavior um, and should be studied that way. In any case, let me come, uh, let me come full circle here. After the Second World War, there begins what I call the surge to the sea. And this was partly triggered by affluence. Uh, the working classes got cars. They bought cottages. They built things like this in England. Uh, 
cottage communities right up on the beach, seawalling them, sealing them off, presuming that those uh, small walls would hold, and providing themselves for the first time uh, with some kind of connection with the sea that they had never had before, could not have even imagined before, actually. So all of this, the surge to the sea, the population movement toward the sea, has resulted now in something like 80% of all the world's population living within 100 miles of the sea. Never before in human history has this happened. And I think you need to spend a little time contemplating this to ask what consequences this has for the shore itself and for us, the human species. But let me go forward. The surge to the sea. The surge to the sea has had a number of interesting consequences. One of them is, uh, is typified here in the, the cartoon, 1957 cartoon in the New Yorker about the view, what is it, the view from Ninth Avenue, okay? Uh, and what it shows you is a, is in the United States, which now appears to constitu be constituted only of shores, only of edges, with its middle hollowed out as if that is no longer a place of interest. That's no longer a geography of interest. And there's a large, um, there's a good deal of truth in this, in this cartoon, in the way people today um, understand our country and indeed understand other countries as well. But what this is, what this suggests is the colonization uh, of the shore by uh, the interior. Strangely enough, that hollowed out area has come to settle now on the shores, uh, both east and west, north and south. And this has led to what I call the triumph of the landlubberly culture on the shores. The displacement of the old coastal cultures of fishermen, hunter-gatherers, and so on. But not only that, but the displacement of nature itself. Do any of you know that 80% of all wetlands in the United States are now gone, are simply gone? They're, they, they've disappeared in the last 50 years or so. That's an extraordinary thing when we consider now uh, the importance of wetlands, the breeding of fish, breeding of birds, and indeed to the breeding of our own healthy natures. So what has happened is that we have replaced a natural edge with a anthropocentric engineered edge, an edge which comes out of our own um, geometric imagination rather than the the, 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 the ways of, of nature, which are never geometric. By the way, nature has no straight lines. And the very idea of the coastline invented in the 18th century uh, is uh, somewhat suspect in all ways. 
Now, what are we doing? What are we doing at the edge of the sea now? Well, this is interesting. And this has led me to uh, some, some uh, I think, interesting observations on, on the way we are changing as well as what, the way the shores are changing. The soft margin has been displaced by the hard anthropocentric edge. Seawalling, seawalling, which, well, I'll come back to this in a moment, but um, seawalling, which is the, uh, what seems to be the, the natural response of the Army Corps of Engineers and, and uh, engineers of all kinds, seems to have been the worst symbol, the worst move we could have made uh, in uh, transforming the shores. Why? Because it's been shown that when you tie down the shore, when you draw a line, when you mark that line with concrete, you kill the shore. The shore is a living thing. The shore is sand moving. Not, not, it's not a fixed place. The shore has never been a fixed place. And as Rachel Carson put it, it's always been an indefinable and unpredictable place. Like us, indefinable and unpredictable, living, erratic, and unruly, that's the way shores were until the mid-20th century when they were pinned down, concreted in, and otherwise um, lined up to fit our particular specifications. Now this has produced, and I think everyone acknowledges this today, the erosive effects that we see up and down the east and west coast. It's generally understood that the more you seawall, the more you're likely to lose the sand which was there. The more you wall in the shore, the less of it you will have in a healthy condition. Furthermore, this leads to increased storm damage. Shores become increasingly vulnerable, interestingly enough, when you wall them. This is contradictory, intuitively contradictory, but it's absolutely true. Walls don't work, folks. They really don't work. They produced erosion, storm damage, and pollution. The most interesting case of this is in Japan, where 65% of the shores are concreted over now. Partly this is due to some, uh, I don't know, fetishism of, uh, uh, of engineering among the Japanese, but more important is that the concrete industry is the largest single industry beyond car manufacturing in Japan. And any time the manufacturers want to increase their profits, they concrete something else over. So they concrete their shores. <coughs> they line their rivers. And they build tsunami barriers. These huge seawalls, these immense seawalls 
along the coast, which, as we've seen so recently, proved quite ineffective. It used to be from the, I guess from the 16th century onwards, that the Japanese marked the extent of tsunamis in the old coast, the old soft coast, by placing what were called tsunami stones at the highest elevation of the flood. So you, they, would, they would know, or at least they had an idea of how far they had to flee when any tsunami began to approach. But in the 20th century, these tsunami stones were either lost or turned into garden decorations. In any case, in the great tsunami of just a couple of years ago, uh, there was no marker to know how far to flee from the tsunami, and the death toll, as you know, was absolutely stunning. What would our tsunami stones look like? Well, I don't know, honestly. I think it's an interesting idea. I suggested it after the uh, Sandy disaster uh, on the East Coast, uh, and then uh, was kind of became a kind of joke. We'll put up all these sandy stones, and people will know at least how far to build back from the shore. But it turns out that's unpopular with developers um, and with local real estate agents. In Santa Barbara, somebody suggested a few years ago that they paint a blue line uh, around or inside the town, or along the streets, which would be the marker for the high, uh, predicted high sea rise. Well, I think that, that didn't last a minute because all of the real estate developers and all the householders rose up and said, this will destroy our property values. So that's, that's the kind of thing you run into. What we've really lost, though, when you come down to it, is uh, our ability to live with the sea. And this is a crucial word for me. To live with the sea is not to live on the sea or even by the sea. Now, millions of us, and I love this, uh, this photograph of this, uh, these Mennonite uh, couple and the young hippie couple coming down to uh, sea gaze. Sea gazing was discovered by uh, uh, Herman Melville in the 1850s when he noticed that so many of the people in Manhattan would come down on a Sunday afternoon and line uh, the shores and simply look out to sea. They were finding something there. They were finding the blue horizon, what I call the blue horizon. They were exercising their imaginations. It was wonderful. Paul Theroux, the writer, found the same thing happening in the 1980s in England, where he called this, the, he called this sitting on the shore and gazing out to sea the poor person's vacation. The sea provides us with a blue horizon, new frontiers, and so on. But it is interesting what it doesn't provide us. These folks have no more relationship to that sea that they are watching than they have to the moon. And the fact is we've lost 
our ability to live with the sea. We've lost our ability to, to um, understand in an existential sense, as well as a technical sense, um, that environment and the, the long history of relationships with the sea that have been lost when uh, we have neglected the history of the shore, when we've neglected uh, the oral history of the shore, when we have uh, failed to understand how integral, here's another uh, sea gazers in Germany, actually. Oops, come on, please, please. There we go. Now, we've even gone to such absurd lengths because we so despoiled um, the seas and the beaches and so on, that we've begun to build uh, seacoast indoors. This is the first indoor uh, coast done by the Japanese. The Japanese always seem to be, get there first. Um, and I don't think there have been too many imitators of this, but it gives you an idea of how wildly out of sync we are with, with nature when we have to go indoors to find it and to understand it, okay? All right, now let me finish up on what I'm saying here, try to bring this this whole thing together. Come on, come to me. No, no, there, I know there's another one here. <laughs> there we are, all right. Now in one of her earliest writings, it's a wonderful piece by Rachel Carson, she, she predicts, she prophesies that we came from the sea, you know, in the deep, deep eons of biology. And we came to the sea in this process that I described to you from the pinnacle point onward. And now we're going back to the sea. There we go. There's, there's, your, there's her evolutionary theory I mean, she wouldn't subscribe to this, and it's specifics, but it's very, very interesting to think about history as going in this long arc, an arc which begins at the sea, comes to the land, spends some time, as whales did, uh, on the land, and then go back into the sea. Maybe this will happen to human beings. I don't know. There's some aficionados out there, Sylvia Earle and some others who would, uh, I think, imagine this is a possibility. But let's, let's just imagine it as a, as a fun cartoon. But let's, let's take it a little bit seriously. Because what <clears throat> Rachel Carson suggested is, not that we come back to the sea physically. She knew we didn't have... You know, this is not a Hollywood film where we have gills and we can survive underwater. No, 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 no. No, we, she recommended that we come back to the sea imaginatively. That our sea gazing is something that we probably ought to indulge more in. We, <clears throat> she argued that we need to find a way back to the sea, back to its regenerative imaginative qualities, to find a source uh, that will allow us to turn our backs, if even temporarily, on the mess we've made on land, and perhaps to 
revitalize ourselves. And I think the, the way I would think about this is our duty then is to restore at least some of the ecotonal nature of the shore, some of its ecological richness, some of its mix of, uh, of, of, of ecologies, something that will allow us uh, to go back at least to approach the shore um, in a, a reverent way. <laughs>